is that the most creative people on the planet generally succeed by producing more works of art than the less creative people. Mm-hmm. So most of the people that are famous, the Beethovens, Mozarts, etc., um, actually produce, or Thomas Edison, however you want to think about it, in different fields, um, actually succeeded by producing just more output. Yeah. Um, than other artists yeah. and then some fraction of that output was incredibly high quality yeah. mm-hmm. um, so it's not as if they were sitting around you know brainstorming all day and then they have this epiphany and they produce one piece and that's the masterpiece mm-hmm. although there are some cre- examples in the creative world of that mm-hmm. more of the most famous you know world-class creative types are, are, are just actually producing a lot at a velocity that's unprecedented yeah. for their fields mm-hmm. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast, where I interview creative people about the stress that comes from a living a life of creative work. I search for tips and strategies for how to integrate and work with the inherent stress that comes from creating that which you are here to create. Today I interviewed Keith Raboy, the legendary tech investor and entrepreneur who had key roles at PayPal, LinkedIn, and Square. He agreed to come on my show after I confronted him about his views on work-life balance on Twitter. Since this debate, my own views on stress have come to a 180-degree turn, and I now view the stress response as a beneficial tool that evolution has bestowed on us to live in a world that is inherently uncertain. It's a gift. Use it like one. If you like this episode, please consider subscribing on iTunes by searching for Crazy Wisdom and hitting the subscribe button. You can also find me on Instagram by searching for at Thank you, and have a wonderful day. So what's your name? Hi, I'm Keith Raboy. I'm a managing director at Coastal Ventures after uh, 13 years of being an entrepreneur and four years of being a lawyer. Oh, cool. And uh, we originally talked because of stress and uh, I, I was talking about the work-life balance and um, I have this idea of work-life balance as like something you should prioritize at all costs. And then you replied with that, no, we should, uh, that work is an important part, part of life. But not only work, but like stress itself is the interesting thing. How do you deal with stress in your life? Well, yeah, I think um, there's several, you know, sort of embedded questions in there. But um, fundamentally, one principle in my life is that stress is good for you. Uh. That the more you challenge yourself, the better. The happier you are, the wealthier you are, the health, uh, the healthier you are, and the more ultimately you accomplish. And there's a lot of research actually that supports this. Um, one of my favorite books I've ever read is called The Upside of Stress by a professor at Stanford named Kelly McDougall. Um, and it's revolutionary. Um, the research is incredibly compelling. Um, she answers every possible objection. It turns out this is true across any demographic, any background, any sort of stressor, that it all comes down to a mental attitude. That if you have the right mental attitude, which is that stress is a challenge and something to look forward to, and it's something that uh, uh, extends your abilities, it's like a muscle you're exercising, that even at the biochemical level, your body reacts very differently than if you think stress is bad for you. And then you can show that people who, are, who have this attitude perform better on interviews, they perform better in school, they perform better on objective tests, and they live longer. Um, there's a 20-minute uh, TED Talk that the professor gives that um, she sort of, um, yeah, sort of announced her views before she wrote the book, which is a good introduction for people, but although the book is better and more substantive, but I, I think it's an easy way to get you know, sort of um, a reassessment of your life. People have basically been taught that stress is bad and that stress should be avoided and minimized since, about, since the 1950s. And it turns out that all of that, inf- all of those views and perspectives are based upon really torturing lab rats. And A, lab rats are not necessarily predictive totally about how humans behave, but secondarily, 
there's a big distinction between torture and stress. Um, and yes, I'm not recommending torturing everybody, but uh, stress is actually a great way to live your life. And so uh, when did you first read this book or when did you first kind of come into contact with this framework? I read the book about three or four years ago, um, but it really codified a lot of my personal beliefs. Yeah. It's always nice to read something that has all of your beliefs summarized and succinctly and powerfully so you can kind of proselytize and give people copies. And, and But that's why I want to ask is like, did when did this kind of realization come come to you in your life? Well, I've always sort of had this view. I mean, sort of dates back to when I was fairly young. I would always challenge myself probably by doing too many things. I was a little ADD or intellectually curious, depending upon how euphemistic you want to be. And so I was always doing a lot of things like juggling, like running seven different organizations in school and a bunch of sports. And that created challenge and stress on me just try to do all those things. And then I continued that sort of philosophy through college and to some extent law school. And so I always sort of believed that this is how one succeeded and thrived and was satisfied emotionally, but there wasn't a lot of research uh, to support it. So I could lead by example and um, you know, sort of proselytize um, with the end of one sort of um, philosophy. Um, but then I was able to find the distillation uh, of all of this work and, you know, really original research um, that just explained everything that I'd been thinking for 30 years. Yeah. And so uh, you'd mentioned that uh, when you, uh, there's a, there's a line between basically taking on too much stress and then not, and like taking on too many projects. Uh, did you ever find yourself in that line? And what is your advice in terms of like, is there that line? Well, the line must exist, right? There's still <laughs> only 24 hours in a day and you have to sleep eight hours a day. So that doesn't leave infinite, you know, bandwidth. Yeah. Um, so fundamentally, yeah, I've pushed the envelope a fair amount. <laughs> I'll argue I'm pushing the envelope right now. Uh-huh. I, I serve on way too many boards yeah. uh, for most VCs uh, taste. But um, I like that challenge. I like the, uh, there's a, you know, the old adage in startups is desperation breeding innovation. Uh-huh. And I think that's true. Mm-hmm. So by juggling a little bit too much, forcing yourself to always be thinking, prioritizing, uh, makes you, uh, I think, more powerful, uh, powerfully filter things and opportunities and prioritize better. Um, although it can be a little uncomfortable all the yeah. time. Yeah. And this is something I've found interesting because I'm a yoga teacher and we talk a lot about balance. Uh, and But when you ask anybody what is balance, there is no answer. Uh, so it's like it's a continuous balancing of these different things that we've got going on. And so when you notice yourself that you're in that state of like, okay, I've got way too much going on. What are your strategies? Do you have any strategies for, for... Well, the classic one, I have a whole set of strategies in an operating business. I have a lecture I taught for YC called How to Operate. And most of the lecture is about how do you create leverage? How do you create executive and managerial leverage? Mm-hmm. So you can get more things done in parallel and get them done better mm-hmm. uh, through other people. And how do you do that through an organization? Not every kind of work can be uh, leveraged that way. So for example, writing a book. It's pretty hard to write a, a powerful book with like 13 different authors mm. um, and venture capital has historically been difficult to scale in kind of a high leverage way. But many projects, many opportunities actually can. And then the art is what's a high leverage activity, uh. borrowing from Andy uh, Grove's book, High Output Management. So what, what allows you to do the most with your time and then prioritize that and then deprioritize other things that can be delegated and knowing how to delegate responsibly. So there's there's techniques that work in the world. Um, they just don't work in every industry. Yep. There are still is or painting. If one wanted to be an artist, uh-huh. probably probably hard to imagine how do you like sort of 
create a structure, uh, yep. you know, to uh, make mass uh, to generate masterpieces at scale yep. um, through other people. And this is the interesting thing because I'm interviewing creative people, so a lot of the people who come on my podcast are artists, uh, and artists seem to thrive in an st- area with no structure uh, and just kind of open ended, like you know, like. And there's little bits of structure, but um, yeah. So how the writers, uh, if you interview yeah. writers who are uh, obviously creative. There's two schools of thought, uh, a pol- and they're pretty polar opposite, actually, in writing. There are the writers who need an unstructured environment, and then there's a lot of very successful writers, including some of the most successful writers of all time, that are incredibly disciplined. And they wake up at 8 a.m. every single day, and they mm. write for four or five hours, and then they put their pen down, mm. and they're done. Yep. And they just insist on doing that mm. every single day. Mm. So it has worked in writing there that one can apply a very structured, disciplined process to create you know, high quality output, but it does seem generally speaking in creativity. Although again, another piece of research that's somewhat counterintuitive and that isn't as well distributed and known about as it could be, is that the most creative people on the planet generally succeed by producing more works of art than the less creative people. Mm-hmm. So most of the people that are famous, the Beethovens, Mozarts, etc., um, actually, or Thomas Edison, however you want to think about it in different fields, um, actually succeeded by producing just more output yep. um, than other artists. Yeah. And then some fraction of that output was incredibly high quality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not as if they were sitting around, you know, brainstorming all day and then they have this epiphany and they produce one piece and that was the masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Although there are some cre- examples in the creative world of that. Mm-hmm. More of the most famous, you know, world-class creative types are, are, are just actually producing a lot at a velocity that's unprecedented yeah. for their field. Mm. Mm. Think of Tom, you know, in some ways, you think of Einstein in four months produced four papers that are more important than probably the last 400 years of everybody else's work. Yeah. And how old was he when he did, did that? Uh, I don't remember, but probably 23 or so. Huh. And do you know whether over the span of his lifetime, was that the most productive time of his lifetime? Oh, by far. Like, uh-huh. literally almost nothing else he did for the rest of his life uh-huh. mattered in, in comparison. Maybe there's one, there's a fifth paper, actually, that was actually at the same level of importance, but that was produced like six or nine months later. So in mm-hmm. one year, Whoa. he produced five papers that transcended what everybody else in physics has probably done for like centuries. Um, that's crazy. And so... Uh, now I want to talk about your high intensity interval training because yes, that, sure. is, that is a that is a stressful form of exercise, and yep. there's a lot of evidence backed saying that that is the one that's going to keep you uh, in good health for the, the longest. longest yeah. Yeah. And what? How did you find that? Was that something you read about and then started doing, or was it something you'd always been doing? No, um, I actually it is a conscious decision. As of you know, now in my forties. Um, like many people in their 40s, I've always tried to figure out how to stay young or mm. get younger. And there's a variety of different techniques. Um, high, in, high intensity interval training is actually a proven um, methodology. Mm. Um, historically, I actually don't, I did not enjoy high intensity training. Mm-hmm. I, actually, I don't think anybody enjoys it. Well, there like are that. some people who, like, um, for whatever set of crazy reasons, yeah. enjoy it. Yeah. But historically, I would enjoy weightlifting or I would enjoy playing soccer or basketball. And, and other sports, but I avoided like running on a treadmill, running hill, hill sprints occasionally I'd weave in, uh, mostly for soccer training purposes. But I didn't actually consciously pursue high intensity training for health reasons and mostly because I didn't like it. Yeah. Um, and I'd, I'd be a little bit of a wimp myself, which is if I try to do it on my own, I wouldn't push myself hard enough, which is a common challenge. 
Um, and then I discovered, you know, some research that this stuff really works, mm. that, you know, one way to predict your health is your two minute uh, recovery, which is basically the amount um, your heart rate declines from peak exercise and after two minutes, uh, what's the decline in beats per minute. Mm. And that's the single best data point about like mm. your effective age. Um, it's not it's not perfect, but if you only knew one piece of data, that's about the best one you can get. And so that is you are exercising for you know a minute, and then you and then you stop. You measure your heartbeat immediately once you stop, and then after two minutes. Two minutes, okay. yeah. So you can exercise as long as you want. You want to get to a, a pretty aggressive state, and then just stop, and then see how much your heart recedes to normal okay. or close to normal. Um, and there's scales you can Google them. And, and some, at some level of performance, you're actually sort of older. Effectively, your body is biologically older than your chronological age. And then at some levels of recovery, it actually suggests you're younger than your biological age. There are, there's an advanced blood test you can take. It's about $3,000 that will sort of um, kind of eat, uh, specifically age your cells. Um, but that's not something you could do, you know, consistently and it's not really affordable for most people. Mm -hmm. um, eventually we'll have tests like that mm. that you can do, you know, at home every week as you progress on your exercise regimen, as you get more sleep, as you take, you know, maybe perhaps different food or diets. So you could see the progress in how your body is reacting literally at a chemical and cellular level. Mm. And I think that's important for over time as people realize that they want to live a more active uh, longer life, that there are ways to do this. It's not just a random roll of the dice, mm. but mm. you need to be able to compress the feedback loop and give people mm. credible methodology that shows the progress yeah. so that they adhere. So for example, you can go on intermittent fasting or severe caloric restriction to about 1200 calories a day. Mm. It's not particularly exciting <laughs> to, you know, to live <laughs> on 1200 <laughs> calories a day, but it actually probably works. Yeah. Um, but I think the only way to get that to be a mainstream activity is to show people the exact effect it's having on their body. Yeah. So you went from effectively 44 years old to 36 years old to 30. Well, I can see a lot of people being addicted to that. Mm. If you could absolutely, if you could show them precisely, quantitatively, that that was the impact. And quick feedback as well as mm -hmm. like immediately once they start doing it, show them how yep. it's starting to affect their lives. So anyway, about three years ago or so, yeah, approximately three, maybe four years ago, I, I got addicted to high intensity training. Yeah. Um, I mean, soccer and basketball to some extent have yeah, elements of that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, insofar as I was doing something for fun that had the byproduct of having you know, some confidence in high-intensity training, but on the non-soccer, non-basketball days, yeah. um, I didn't really do anything like that. Yeah. And then I found this workout program in San Francisco that I got pretty addicted to, um, that I now you know swear by and uh, probably prioritize you know at the expense of other things um you know and and, and uh huh. go to this the one i use although they're comparable um facilities in other cities it's called barry's boot camp okay um i go there virtually every day huh. it's an hour program um basically a combination of sprints on a treadmill incline runs on a treadmill and free weights on the floor hmm. back and forth um, rotating so probably about 25 minutes of each hmm. um, you turn your brain off you turn your phone off and you get an incredibly efficient workout hmm. um, and then you can monitor i use my apple watch you know hmm. to monitor this progress and then you time apple watch to a variety of apps hmm. cardiogram zones or the apple per, uh, the yeah. apple and there's a trainer who's 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 guiding you through yeah the... there's a class of 40 to 50 people uh -huh that um, provides the program, instruction, motivation, music. Uh -huh. So it's actually enjoyable. It's almost like a healthy club in some ways. Uh -huh. uh, kind of uh -huh. pop, pop 
music, uh -huh. um, to a workout. But one of the things that I like other than the health benefits is I can totally turn my brain off. Mm -hmm. You know, if I work out on my own, I have to think about what should I do today? How many sets, what weights, mm -hmm. how intense here, you, there's no choices. Mm -hmm. You just do what you're told <laughs> and it's, it's, it's really invigorating. Uh -huh. uh, and so what I've, I started reading the book, I got about 50% of the way through, uh, and, uh, from what I'm understanding is that basically stress is an inevitable fact of life mm -hmm. uh, and that throughout our lives we're going to have stress and that the actual hiding away from stress is uh, causes more stress because then you're always looking for like, oh, is that going to stress me out? Uh, and I think most people live their lives in that, in that state. But then what I'm realizing is that so stress is inevitable. Uh, so the only thing we have choice over is basically what stress we're going to go under and then how quickly we recover from stress, right? Well, I think it's also an attitude. It's a mental mm -hmm. attitude that this is, that as opposed to thinking of this as, oh my God, I'm under stress. It's like, oh my God, this is a great opportunity to challenge myself. Yeah. And if you think about people who do um, sports or professional activities, they're voluntarily choosing. Mm -hmm to enter fields that are very stressful environments to force to see how, how well they can perform mm -hmm. and what, what level can I actually perform. Mm -hmm. So there, there's examples and maybe that's why sort of it was intuitive to me before there was all this research is yeah. um, having enjoyed sports is like that's what people do is they're voluntarily mm -hmm. choosing incremental stress that they don't have to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so to some extent I think that's the same attitude which is instead of thinking of athletics as a different field take that same approach in your work environment. Mm. So great, this is a wonderful opportunity like to compete and show that I'm capable of doing more than people assume mm. and that I'm gonna take the time constraints that's causing the stress or mm. the intellectual constraints that are causing the stress or the competitive constraints that are causing the stress and turn those into opportunities. Mm. And just by reframing it that way, mm -hmm. it actually improves your performance, which mm. may seem hard to believe, but if you read the book, you'll see the research is incredibly well done. The methodologies are all sound, yeah. um, and it's been explored in different contexts from, as I said, from interviews to standardized tests, and that the impact actually persists, meaning that it's not just a spike for the day you have this attitudinal change mm. on an interview or a test, that those interviews and tests lead to better outcomes in your life permanently. Mm. The other thing that's like revolutionary, which is almost shocking I believe, is that your health, meaning how long you live, is actually better if you have more stress in your life. Mm. Um, and that's the most shocking piece of the research. Mm. Not that I think it was obvious to me at least that stress wasn't bad for you health-wise, but actually people have no stress in their life, mm -hmm. live less long yeah. than people who have a reasonable amount of stress. And this is this is fits with basically our the culture of being sedentary and watching TV. You're just kind of no stress whatsoever in those time periods. Um, and it's so interesting because that from reading this book, it feels like that is something that has been a mindset is basically a mindset that's been taught to us. So it's something yeah. that like is not it's totally under our control. If these people had this information, it would change their, their Yeah, I mean, I think that's why like we're basically doing a disservice to mm -hmm. a huge fraction of American people by giving them advice to have less mm -hmm. stress in their life and de-emphasize things that produce stress, mm -hmm. whereas like they're really sentencing themselves to a worse life on any dimension, which is somewhat radical. Um, and I think we'll learn other things over time as we have more sensors and data that track people that are healthy people as opposed to people who are already sick and ill. 
um, that you'll see that other things that work really magically in mm. converting your life are like sleep, mm. like getting uh, prioritizing quality sleep, eight hour sleep. I am sure will one day be proven to reduce diseases and various other impacts. Mm. It's just that no one's really studied longitudinally the effect of eight hour sleep over 40 years on somebody. Uh, interesting. So another favorite book of mine is called Why We Sleep. Uh -huh. um, it's probably the best book, uh, most you know, thoughtful, well-written, uh, comprehensive, and authoritative on the subject. Mm. But even that's just the first inning or second inning of sleep research. Mm. When you experience kind of high stressful situations, like things that really take it out of you, do you ever have this moment where you need to kind of do something to sit back and like integrate what just happened? Yes. Um, so first of all, I'm fairly introverted. And so under stress, to some extent, I like to withdraw and have time to myself. I don't like to always be engaging with other people, even though professionally, that's a lot of what I do. Um, so I need to um, find a way to just sit back at home, watch football, read a book, um, and then you know my thoughts sort of develop and solutions emerge over time in my mind. Um, so that's one that works for me. Sometimes I'll do something like you know competitive basketball or like high intensity training where my brain doesn't have time to it has to focus on you know the sensory experience right in front of it mm -hmm. right in front of it it doesn't have time to get lost in thoughts about like what I could have done differently mm -hmm. um, and then I think I have generally shared the attitude of I remember reading about President Truman when he you know decided to drop a nuclear bomb on Hiroshima and was asked later in his life whether he ever regretted that and he's like no it wouldn't I never like it wouldn't do any good to think about yeah, it, yeah, yeah. right? Uh -huh. like, and so to some extent, I've tried to sure, uh, apply that attitude of decisions that have already been made. It's not worth rethinking about them because you can't change them. Mm -hmm. You can think about what you can learn from the decisions and what you could have, you know, what you should have known or done differently. But fundamentally, regret of a decision is a useless exercise, yeah. and it just is going to cause more drain on you mm -hmm. because it literally can't be changed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, so you mentioned you're an introvert. I'm an introvert as well. And but uh, at the same time, I I, uh, I was I'm wondering about for you when you go into group exercise, does it also change the ability to integrate, or is it like in talking with people? Is that where it gets draining? Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm not severely uh -huh. introverted. As I said, most of my professional life is in engaging in pretty extroverted activities. Yeah. But under under stress I, I find virtue for me mm. in being by myself for a while yeah. so and sometimes even at the end of a day of just dealing with a lot of people managing a lot of people speaking to a lot of people I just want to retreat yeah. um, and my body needs that mm -hmm. and that's perfectly fine I think it probably applies to 20 to 40 percent of the US population and then there's other people who under stress like are extroverted and they actually thrive and get energy from being with other people mm -hmm. so Understanding yourself um, is probably important um, in developing habits, you know, that work for you. What are, I guess we've already been talking about, but what are the most important activities you do or most important frameworks for understanding yourself or? Mm -hmm. A little try. I mean, a fair amount is trial and error, yeah. right? There's uh -huh. not, not a lot of magic. Experimentation. You know, sometimes you have to try X and figure out how it affects you. Um, you know, there's not that many tools that allow you to quantitatively measure all yeah. the impact. I think we will have more of those and I think more people are more entrepreneurs are creating companies that are designed to do this. You know, I, for example, uh, measure my sleep 
and have measured my sleep every night since roughly 2009 uh, uh, with like an old Zio machine. Uh, so I can track the total sleep, the quality sleep, deep sleep, REM sleep, et cetera. And that's pretty important. And I can at least therefore compare some kinds of inputs and outputs. So for example, you know, when was the last time in the day I had caffeine? Did I drink any alcohol? How much alcohol? Some of that actually has conspicuous effect on my sleep, which then therefore has effect on my performance the next day mm. and attitude. And you can tell all this based on Oh, testing. absolutely. Whoa. Absolutely. Um, there, there's very clear, even supplements, even, uh, I can even see the impact of taking this vitamin and that vitamin. Huh. Um, and sometimes they have exactly the impact you want. Sometimes they have actually kind of perverse effects. Uh -huh. So for example, there's this afternoon vitamin supplement um, that a lot of uh, trainers recommend. Huh. And it has one great impact, which is it improves deep sleep. The problem is it also reduces at the expense of REM sleep. Hmm. And so if I take too much of the supplement, I wind up less REM sleep than I want with more, with enough deep, with more deep sleep, it's great. So what I figured out is I just take two thirds of the supplement mm. and then I get the deep sleep boost, but without compromising on the REM. Wow. Uh, so like, you know, if you have the right measurement instruments, you can learn how to adjust what you do. The problem is society, you know, technology companies haven't really created a lot of measurement instruments that really are non-invasive and convenient to use. Um, but I think that's changing. I think over the next five years, we'll see explosion in measurement instruments that are mainstream. I mean, as I mentioned, I use my Apple Watch for measuring, you know, my sort of hit exercise, my two minute, calculates my two minute recovery. Yes, you can calculate two minute recovery without, you know, any fancy instrument. You know, there's way, clearly ways to do that, but, but because it's automatic and automatically calculated, I do it every single day. And then by the way, now that it's automatically calculated, I screenshot it and share it with my friends, try to inspire them. So I post it on social media. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, that encourages them. Some people like didn't even realize this was a, you know, sort of a, a key variable and they start reading about it and learning about it and they start measuring it themselves. Yeah. And then I have friends where we compare ourselves every day. So you can create a positive feedback loop as you have more technology products that allow you to measure. It's the classic, you know, what you measure, you can optimize. Mm -hmm. And so I think we'll have more ways to measure sleep. I funded a company that measures sleep um, in a non-invasive way. I think we'll see sort of blood test based um, products that become available to people for managing their own performance in life, mm. not just for medical issues. Mm. Mm. Um, that's really interesting. And um, so as technology improves, we are talking about kind of introversion, extroversion and people and communicating with people and you, you found it valuable to have your life uh, in kind of more communication with people even though the you, you say you're introverted and everything like that. As technology improves and as kind of computers are more able to take over this repetitive work, it seems to me that people will then become the key ingredient to business success or yeah. how, mu how do you view the how much people are going to become important in knowing a lot of people versus, uh, say, honing your craft and being able to be an individual contrib contributor. I, I still think, like, ultimately, a lot gets done through organizations, yeah. and organizations are just a combination of people. people. Yeah. And so there's still going to be incredible value, arguably even more value, in the marshalling of people, the organization, the management, the performance improvement, the coaching, the mentoring. That, I don't, I don't see a lot of progress there on the technical front. Um, I do think human decision-making is being improved, expert decision-making is being improved through AI and math. So lawyers, mm. doctors, real estate agents, all of that you know, is being displaced, either augmented or displaced with math. Um, so math can read an EKG machine better, uh, EKG report better than a cardiologist, 
definitely math can outperform a radiologist. So that kind of human judgment is just mm. not very good. Yeah. Um, that said, you're still going to need to marshal a group of people, organize them against one major priority, uh, and and also just improve skills. And I think some skill development can be done through software technology. Mm. Other parts are still going to rely upon human coaching. Mm. Interesting. So it sounds like human coaching will become important then. Uh, I, I think. I mean, I think it's always been important, but yeah. as um, software improves, it may actually be the differentiator. Mm. Um, so, so the yeah. software becomes more commoditized. So it's the delta in organization one versus organization two versus organization three. It may be the coaching, mentoring, team development. Huh. Um, so do you coach others or do you do you kind of uh, do, you do any philanthropy work? Because that for me, it seems like the biggest impact I can make with I, I teach meditation, I teach yoga and all these different things. And it seems like the biggest impact I can make is taking that and not helping somebody who can pay me because they probably don't need it as much as somebody who can't pay me. Uh, is there any kind of work that you do in that? In that? Well, the way, the way I think about it, that's what I do for a living, mm. is every day, um, most of what I do is mentoring entrepreneurs. Uh -huh. um, so rarely is the value of what I do giving somebody money, even yeah. though that's what a lot of people focus on. Mm. Um, most of the reason why people choose to work with me and most of the value they get out of working with me is advising and mentoring. And so I do that all day long. Actually, I describe my job often as being a psychologist uh -huh. um, because basically what happens most of my day is sitting down with someone at a table or a sofa and and I say, tell me your problems. Uh -huh. And then we chat about the problems and I ask them a series of questions. Like, have you thought about this? Have you talked to this person? Have you tried this? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And I really feel like I'm playing pop psychologist all day. Uh -huh. um, so that's, that's what I do. Um, I, in some extent, even in an organization as a leader, an, exec, an executive, that's what you want to do. That's yep. how you scale mm. Um, mm. is teaching and mentoring. Um, and there's different techniques. Sometimes the technique is a full all-company meeting, but that you're presenting ideas and explaining context that's designed to make hundreds of people better at their job. Sometimes it's one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's learning by osmosis, which is really hard to scale. There are certain things that um, are easier to teach by osmosis, watching observation. Mm -hmm. That's typically something that's done only with one or two people in parallel at a time, which yeah. is unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, but uh -huh. yeah, this is what... This is mostly what I've been doing for the last 18 years in Silicon Valley. Um, and it's incredibly rewarding to watch, you know, um, people that were 21 years old or 22 years old when you sort of discover them that are now extremely proficient at various things, um, often better than I am. Uh -huh. And then also watching your former interns, you know, start being CEOs of companies and doing really well. Uh -huh. uh, so that's, that's the most, probably rewarding part of being an investor or executive in startups. Who is somebody you've most recently come into contact with who is kind of flying under the radar uh, and you think is going to be become a big uh, success? Well, I wrote, um, I went out there on a limb in 2010 when Quora was launched. There was a question posed on Quora that said, you know, who in their 20s has kind of undiscovered it's going to be super successful? And I listed like eight people, and even today, eight years later, it reads pretty well. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. But that, this kind of exercise is always fraught, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. fraught yeah. with risk. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure I'll give you a list of very specific people again. Okay. That one worked out well. People can, <laughs> people can Google it yeah. um, and look, make sure they look at the date it was published because uh -huh. uh, obviously it'd be easy to publish that now. Yeah. Um, but um, 
No, my 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 number one skill perhaps is to find people like this mm-hmm. and identify them earlier in their career. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the best people I've ever worked with, I hired either right out of college, persuaded them to drop out of college, or within one year of their first college job. And most of them did not go to elite institutions. Many of them were non-technical. Mm-hmm. So very defined the stereotype. Like some, for example, went to USF in the city, another went to UC Davis, mm-hmm. um, which are all fine schools, but they're not like the classic Stanford, Harvard, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah types. Um, and um, almost all of them were non-technical and they didn't have any specific professional skill at the, mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. And they've gone on to you know, be CEOs, COOs, VPs of products, founders um, in all different parts, in all different industries in Silicon Valley. Um, another went to like US, UC Santa Cruz. Uh-huh. So very unconventional uh, Silicon Valley elite schools. Is that what, when you do that, when you find somebody who is who you think is going to be uh, successful, are, are, is it all implicit or is it explicit? Do you have explicit things you look for or? There's definitely some criteria um, because obviously you can't mentor everybody yeah. and you know lots of people want jobs uh, uh-huh. so you're definitely looking for some and you're not gonna get it 100 percent right it's a little bit if you like sports a little bit like drafting professional athletes out of college or high school like in baseball um and so you're looking for some signs mm. um and being willing to look in different places than other people mm. but you're not going to have 100 percent hit rate um mm. this is pretty speculative stuff but there's there's some there's always something that stands out and then you hope through like this mentoring process osmosis I used uh, one of my friends labels it Keith Bootcamp because um, that can be pretty tough on uh, <laughs> mentees but uh-huh. uh, that they sort of learn a lot very fast mm-hmm. um, they learn broadly mm-hmm. um, typically and then it's on the, then it's on their own to you know demonstrate their skills you know go off jump off jump off a cliff sort of mm-hmm. and learn to swim mm-hmm. you know on their own, mm-hmm. and many of them have. But I wish I could scale this. It's mm-hmm. not the easiest thing to scale because it's mo- a lot by osmosis. Yep. Um, so, for example, the one failed company or mediocre company, sort of that I've worked out in my career. Um, I was just remembering that I used to sit at a table. We assembled a pod of four people, and I was sort of naming the the three junior people that I had sitting next to me all day. They've all gone on to do amazing things, but it's the pod experience of literally sitting next to me all day, listening to me, overhearing phone conversations, casual conversations, mm-hmm. me yelling at them, you know, mm-hmm. when they were doing something mm-hmm. that was slightly off, giving mm-hmm. them feedback every day. Mm-hmm. That I think was the training, but it's hard to imagine how to do that for 400 yeah, people. That's time. Uh, that's, yeah, that's interesting. So you said that you're hard, hard on these guys sometimes. Um, what? Uh, and so, so let me go personal here. Uh, um, sometimes I'd like, because of this kind of idea of stress as being something that I don't want to cause yeah. other people, now I'm starting to like realize, oh, so maybe it is in my best interest, in, in their best interest for me to cause stress to yeah. the people around me or to, to be a little bit stressful or to kind of make, how are some of the ways that you kind of help people improve themselves by giving them a little bit of stress or kind of making the tension of the situation a little bit more intense. I think it's mostly just having high standards yeah. at the end of the day that the work product has to be really good and and not suffering excuses, uh, not accepting excuses. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think 
over time you learn that and develop those habits yourself, rigor of thought, rigor mm-hmm. of performance, speed of performance, and it becomes almost second nature. Yeah. Just like on a winning sports team, there are things that organizations that thrive consistently over years just do as a matter of habit yeah. and it's reflexive. And if, they, if someone from those organizations walked into a failing, losing organization, they'd be shocked. And it's, it's a bunch of accumulation of a lot of little things. So another book I'm an incredible fan of is this book that was post, uh, published after he died uh, by Bill Walsh called The Score Takes Care of Itself. Mm-hmm. And Bill is a very incredibly successful football coach, both at pro level and co- collegiate level. And he tells the story of when he took over the San Francisco 49ers in the late 1970s. They were this absurdly terrible franchise for a very long time. And what he did to rebuild the franchise and make it a successful Super Bowl winning franchise on a pretty consistent basis. And the theory of the book is that the most important thing to do is to focus on just the routine, everyday behaviors and make them excellent and consistent. So don't worry about how do I win a Super Bowl. Worry about how do I answer the phones correctly. Every day. And yeah, every mm-hmm. single day in every single position mm-hmm. in the organization. So there's this great anecdote in the book, which uh, you know shocks people, uh, which is the virtue of it mm-hmm. is he's, he writes that the first thing he did when he took over the 49ers is gave sort of instruction manual to every staff member mm-hmm. how to do their job, including for the receptionist, how to answer the phone properly. Mm-hmm. And that, that those kind of behaviors consistently add up. So this kind of philosophy is something I believe in strongly as applied to startups. Mm. That if you do everything well and consistently do it well, eventually you'll win. Mm. And win you know, is defined differently for everybody, mm. but fundamentally that's the right way to think about things. So that's sort of also how I like to manage people is ensure their work product is consistently excellent, yeah. that their thought process behind the work product is rigorous and that's more important than the ultimate than the, the output and then if you get the thought process to be consistent mm-hmm. and insightful and rigorous ultimately they're going to do great things and what you said about everyday action brings to mind uh because i struggle with this question of burnout um, yep. and when i am focused on daily action uh, not small amounts of action, but uh, enough that I can handle that seems to allow me to be much more effective over the long term. But the times that I've struggled with burnout is these time periods where it's like all the time, always trying to be at my max 90%. Do you, what is burnout to you? And do you ever see it in individuals you're mentoring? And how can you, how do you kind of guide them out of that burnout state, but more into that long term? So the first principle that I apply is I think most of the times I've seen burnout, it's from input of energy without output of success. So banging your head against the table as an adage. I think that drives many people, maybe everybody crazy at some point. So I think it's really important Mm -hmm. to connect effort to output. And when the output starts working, it's really easy uh, to continue to invest the energy. But at some point, when you're investing a lot of energy but not seeing results, it's very, very challenging. Mm-hmm. And I, so then I think the key is to look in the mirror and try to diagnose why is the output yeah. not improving. Mm-hmm. And it can be that, okay, the strategy is wrong, yeah. the tactics are wrong, or the people are wrong. Yeah. But I think rather than just continuing to do the same thing over and over, yeah. um, taking a step back and saying, okay, there's obviously not a great connection between what I'm doing and the output, how do I make this black box sort of work? If I just measure the input and measure the output, 
what do I need to change about this box? And that can be pretty refreshing. Um, and so at some point of frustration or developing burnout, the key is to hit like a panic button and say, okay, we're gonna stop. Mm. We're not just gonna do a little bit more optimization of X, mm. we're gonna take a step back and rethink the whole problem. Yeah. And that's what a good mentor, advisor, board member can do as well. Like I think of my job also sometimes as a board member is being a mirror, mm. almost like a cartoonish mirror, like yeah. in a, you know, a scary house or something <laughs> where you're exaggerating the strengths and the weaknesses, yeah. but you're really playing it back for the founder or the executive so they can see themselves in this cartoonish mirror. Yeah. And so I think that's the key mm. to burnout is starting starting to uh, to validate that the energy is re is producing results. I think it's really different. I mean imagine you know for example in a workout context imagine you're working out every day but like you you saw no improvement visibly and like none of your friends or family notices mm, yeah. it's really frustrating to go to the gym all of a sudden yeah. it's no different when you're working um in a company or in a job um you want to feel like that the byproduct of what you do eventually adds up mm. into success so i think that's the number one driver um secondly yeah by far um and it, i think so it's, the answer is really how do I get? How do I start getting the output that I that I crave, and then the burnout sort of dissipates pretty quickly. I do think there's you know some level of um, in my point about sleep also applies to this. I think many of the people I've also witnessed suffer burnout. It's it's more a function of lack of sleep. Mm. Um, like I'm pretty miserable, not very sharp. My mood is not particularly exciting. My humor just disappears when I don't get proper sleep. Yeah. Um, like my chief of staff can notice, like, like when I start a day and he sees me, he can usually tell like how the day is going to go. Yeah. Um, and so I think by prioritizing sleep, all of a sudden the things that become painful, you can borderline annoying, yeah. you know, like you snap at people more when you're tired. So if you start with how do I get the right amount of sleep so I'm refreshed, I'm energized, mm. You, the same activity seems to be a lot more enjoyable and productive. Mm. And so I think I start with that. Like one of the reasons why I don't like being tired is not just that my output's poor, my concentration's poor, and I'm a little uh, snarkier, mm. is I actually feel like the day is a burden a bit, like getting through the day, mm. versus like on a normal day, I'm excited. I can't wait to do you know most of what I'm gonna You're do. You're challenge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I think I start with okay, let's look at, you know, all of it. let's look at your life holistically if you're burned out. Mm -hmm. You know, what else can we adjust mm -hmm. and see how that, does that reframe um, either your mental attitude or the actual output or both? Mm. So we've got about five minutes left. Uh, I really want to ask you this question. Have you ever uh, experimented with meditation or? I haven't, I really should. Uh -huh. So until recently in the last two or three years ago, it probably wouldn't have been something I wasn't interested in, but there's just more and more scientific literature Evidence. that it's having impact on the actual neurons in your brain yeah. and so it's really something i should invest in and this is a classic example of inertia being you know your worst enemy in yeah. life is i just need to start it yeah. um i know several colleagues of mine that you know swear by it i'm definitely you know tracking the research as more and more is published and it, it's pretty unequivocally good for people especially people who want to live you know highly productive lives yeah. Um, so I really should invest in it and there's easy approachable apps these days, you know, that allow you to get started without the level of commitment that historically was required. So, you know, even though I haven't done it, I, I'm pretty much a fan of it and I just need to apply it to myself. Yep. 
Interesting. And so uh, just is there anything you want our listeners to know about what you're working on or any kind of advice that you have for people to kind of uh, not manage stress but find the upside in stress? Yeah, I think the, most, the best thing one can do is to challenge yourself as much as you can. And partially because you don't know how good you can be and proficient and successful at things until you try. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you limit the quality and depth of the challenge, you may not realize your full potential. And at least knowing what you're capable of is really you know, invigorating and may affect all kinds of things in your life for the next 50 years. And then you can decide whether you want to you know, sort of dumb things down and not be challenged all the time and not you know, always feel like you're about to drown. Mm-hmm. But I think for most people, discovering the edges of their ability mm-hmm. is a great exercise. Mm-hmm. And the more you do that, so I also recommend Find the boss or mentor or executive who will challenge you the most as a way of picking a job. Mm-hmm. Find the company with the steepest learning curve and stay on that learning curve mm-hmm. as long as possible. And then when the slope sort of flattens, then go find a new opportunity. So I think that's my general advice to people is learn at the highest possible rate and challenge yourself at the highest possible rate until you really understand your limits. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, thank you so much. This has been sure. really great talking Pleasure to, to be here. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks.